Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon. Here with my co-host, Audra Simon. Hey, Audra. Rachel. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm melting here in Texas. Hey, <laughs> we're raining sunshine in England. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to trade places? Just Yeah, I do. I do, and so do my tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my rose bushes, forget about it. They're gone. Um, you know what? I'm so excited about today's podcast, Audra. We were just talking about this. We've never had a conversation on EdTech in the almost 300 episodes of this podcast. So I am so excited to welcome Julia Fallon. Uh, she is the executive director of the nonprofit CETA, which is the State Educational Technology Directors Association. She works with U.S. state and territorial digital learning leaders to empower the education community to leverage technology for learning, teaching, and school operations. And I also want to mention she's a self-described technology learning alchemist, which I'm hoping you'll give us a little more background on as well. So welcome, Julia. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me today. (laughs) I know. So let's, I would love to start at the top because this I love alchemy anyway, this whole, this whole idea of how you got started. And I, I think our listeners would love that as well. Sure. So um, I am, I'll say I'm a self-proclaimed Gen Xer. So I'll, if those folks can kind of put me yeah. in their mind where I am. But, um, uh, and we grew up with, you know, game consoles and uh, then eventually and arcade games, I guess were a big thing as well. But um, no, um, I, uh, in college, um, and I think it's the same case now where we talk about hot jobs. Where are the hot jobs? Where are the jobs where you can yeah. get, you know, a, a high wage, high skill kind of things. And system analyst was sort of the big thing when I was in college. Mm. Um, looking for a major after discovering that um, maybe physical therapy and uh, four years of math and science in high school was not where I should probably be. Um, and um, I had some courses at New York University, which is where I did my undergrad. Um, where we learned like WordPerfect 5.1, which I have to tell you, this is a complete aside that I love yes. that program to this day. And I wish we still had it back because it was so versatile um, in, in the ability to be able to manipulate text. Um, DB4, Lotus 1.2.3. So these are the precursors to like the office suites and all of that good stuff. And um, learned that and realized that why my like I could have been at the beach for three days. I was like on an old brother word processor. I was like, I could have learned more perfect and done this. But the teacher saw sort of like a curiosity and aptitude. And I think I've always had that my entire life, Um, spending lots of time at a science center. Uh, during the summer and just being able to manipulate things. Um, so the idea is like alchemy to me. And also um, for those of you that World of Warcraft fans, I was an arcane mage. That was my main character. And um, the idea of being able to just kind of connect dots and put things together and it becomes something is sort of where I got that um, that thought about being a learning um, and technology alchemist, because that's in essence what ed tech is. It's really trying to empower teachers to use technology for learning and students to be able to expand and create. So uh, that's kind of uh, the origin story of that technology alchemist, uh, learning alchemist kind of thing. <laughs> and here I am in technology uh, because of those experiences in college. Yeah. Excellent. That's fantastic. So I remember word perfect. Sorry, Audrey. So no, so do I. And, yeah, I'm. But if you and, think about it, like reveal codes. Notes and <laughs> reveal codes is HTML. Like, I mean, if, if you really were in Word Perfect and in reveal codes, you were probably went off and started doing your own web pages because it was the same concepts um, and everything else. At least initially. Right now, we're into all craziness of whatever. Um, now you know to try to maintain a website, but back in the day, it was easier. Yeah. So anyway. Yep. Really That's nice. my origin story for ed tech and academic computing, as they called it back in the day. And um, I could tell you a little bit of how I ended up in K-12 um, because I worked both at New York University and at um, the University of Michigan. I worked for a nonprofit there called Merit Network, which connected schools and libraries in the 90s, like the mid 90s to 2000s, uh, which is when the Internet really came online here in the United States and connecting um, schools and libraries to those networks. 
and offering then services like email and web stuff just to kind of as a communication mechanism, not as a necessarily as a learning tool. Um, and then um, I went off to sort of join the dot-com boom. Um, I went to go work for a company called Global Crossing. Um, and I know that's all over the place. And um, they went, yeah. the, you know, they had their demise <laughs> during the dot-com bust. But uh, part of that moved me back to Washington State, which is my home state. And um, I got the I got the attention of some folks in the county to help uh, them create IT programs for high schools. They had, you know, uh, those programs where you can get credit for courses in high school and in college. And of course, IT was at the time in the early 2000s, a very high school, high wage sort of um, um, career area. And then that work got the attention of folks at the department, what we call the department. It's called the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction here in Washington State. It's the Department of Ed. Um, K-12, and I got their attention and they said, hey, come help um, other high schools and other districts, you know, develop programs for these high skill, high wage type of jobs. Also to focus on also non-traditional as a woman in the field, um, you don't see at the time you didn't see a lot of us. And it was in, it was important to actually encourage uh, more women uh, to enter the field and what kind of strategies could we do for recruitment and retention in, in the space. So um, that's how I started. I to be honest, I didn't think I would be at the department for more than five years. Like I'm like, K-12, why would I want to do this? Um, and I ended up being there for 17 and a half years. So uh, that is the kind of crazy oh, thing. Wow. But when I started at the department, I actually became a member of CETA. Uh, Washington State was a member. I became part of the team that utilized the membership because I was in career in tech ed and that was related to technology um, in those, those kind of career pathways areas. And... Uh, then I got the attention of the folks at EdTech that come down and work with our folks. Because I talked about how everybody, regardless of career pathway, needs skills, right? Needs digital Absolutely. skills, needs technology literacy skills. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer, you know, using GIS to plot your your fields to, you know, all of the all of the career pathways. But if you want to become a producer of IT, like a, an actual one of the, you know, a computer scientist or a database administrator or web developer, then you'd be go on to those courses. And there's a way in high school to kind of send you off to down the certification track or even down the degree track to get those skills. But then started to work in K, K-8, K-12 for digital literacy. And then I ended up in a federal program called Title II Part A, which is part of the federal education um, law here in the United States. And that is around professional learning. And they had a strand called effective use of technology um, in integration. And that's helping people understand how that really looks. Uh, sometimes going to a conference and learning about 50 websites in math is not really, you know, sustainable professional learning. It's more like how do you learn math concepts and how does technology then maybe bring that to the students uh, learning and everything else. So um, and then about two and a half years ago, I made the jump. Um, and became staff of CETA. So I've been actually with the organization for 19 years, um, working in the state space. Um, these are, so these are all folks that are representing their state departments of education, or we call them SEAs, state education agencies. And it's not just states, it's U.S. territories. Um, and we also represent the DODEA, which is the Department of Defense Schools. Um, and we're a small and mighty little group of folks. And um, we're really passionate about what we do. Um, so I have the experience being a state leader and then obviously now being staff and leading the organization. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> so so shall we jump off into cybersecurity? Yes. Because yes. I, I, I will say one thing that, that things that make the newspaper columns don't tend to be cybersecurity in schools. Then maybe they should, but but um, it would be great if you could kind of educate our listeners a bit more about, you know, why school systems are prime targets for cybersecurity attacks. What kind of information are these hackers trying to obtain? And, and if there are any kind of breaches or examples you could share with us and what the impacts of those were. Sure. Um, and the dog's so answering. That's okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm glad I have my, my earphones and you don't hear my dog barking back. Um, so people don't often think of K-12 school systems as, well, one, we're not super modern in the sense that, um, you know, like businesses and other industry sectors where they're constantly upgrading and um, issuing out um, devices and software and all of that good stuff. 
So in terms of a industry sector, we're sort of lagged behind in the, in the technology adoption and use. And we also tend to use our technology really long time until it's pretty much not working anymore, right? Like it's, it's, it's one of those really long tails in the, in the space. And what makes school systems a prime target, um, which is, I think, surprising to people when they think about it is they're like, why would you have kids information? Like, why would that be a prime target? Well, just imagine if you have enough information, enough PII to open a credit card or a mortgage and no one's monitoring typically um, this, 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 a student, you know what I mean? A young student's credit history, right? Because they're not running around opening up credit cards themselves or buying houses or buying cars. And then what happens is a student goes to apply for colleges and financial aid and then realizes they have all of this debt um, um, or it's identity theft, right? They're using it for other, other kind of documents. So, um, part of the issue is as a system, we're not staffed as a technology. I mean, especially with the smaller districts. So a third of, um, the districts in the United States are under 2000 kids. So you wouldn't have a, maybe a full-time IT person. You might have, and it used to be the math or science teacher. Sometimes the gym teacher would be then be the technology director half time and, and then they were just kind of doing some software and everything else. And we're talking like, this is like the 2000s. Well, now, I mean, we just had a pandemic and we realized, of course, how important um, it was for students to be connected. And thankfully, we had the technologies for that to happen. Um, I think of the days when we used to schedule video calls and it was like a production to get into the room with the video equipment, right, to get you know, to talk to somebody on the cameras and everything else. But it was much yeah. easier um, when the pandemic hit for students and teachers to be connected to one another. But often it's we have IT departments that are thin or maybe non-existent. I mean, in really small, small districts. Um, and here I can, you know, an example in Washington, we have some that have 32 kids, you know, have 100 kids. You're not going to have a full-time IT person or um, a tech-savvy staff, right? It might be staffed by four people, main people and then and that sort of thing. And a lot of them don't have cybersecurity training. I mean, it depends on the IT person that you are. If you're a networking person and you're running things, think about you're not really maybe getting that cybersecurity um, uh, updating that you always need. And then tech changes. I mean, it really has changed in the, in the years, uh, especially in the last 10 years. What we know and what we've talked about, especially also with the federal level folks, is that, you know, unpatched, outdated software is typically how hackers are accessing um, the data. Um, and when you have a three-person IT department, you know, in those larger districts serving thousands of students, how do you stay up on top of all the updating and, and all of the management um, and, and that sort of thing? And I think some of the contributing factors between why cybersecurity is starting to pop out. So we had a breach in, I believe, Minnesota just had a state breach. Um, there was some information and it was a backdoor sort of thing as well. Um, we had some, I'm trying to think of some specific examples uh, recently. Um, I do think of some uh, back where somebody accidentally sent, they fell a, a, a victim to a phishing attempt, right? They thought the superintendent was asking them for all the social security numbers of all the, you know, all their teachers, sends oh, off a wow. spreadsheet, doesn't think about Oops. those sorts of things. But um, I believe New York City had a breach <laughs> recently. Of course, LAUSD. Um, who was very open about what happened. And they were actually at the White House event that happened last week um, focused on K-12 cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. That happened a year ago, September. Um, and that was a ransomware starting to happen, but they were able to sort of call for help and get it controlled, uh, which is good. But it's really becoming more of a front office thing, um, more of a risk. And I think the reason right. why it's being talked about in schools is uh, believe it or not, it's insurance. Initially, insurance. This is a couple of years ago when we started really okay. thinking about cybersecurity in schools. Insurance companies were saying, "Hey, if you don't put in two-factor authentication and you don't put in X, Y, Z, we're going to raise your rates really high because if we're ending up paying for this stuff." Um, and that got the attention, of course, of superintendents and school boards. Um, but it really is no right. longer an IT function alone, right? It is a front office sort of um, thing, but. School networks contain really sensitive personal information for teachers and students, right? Names, addresses, social security numbers, health details. Um, I know at the cybersecurity event last week at the White House, uh, mental health was big. That That is also in there. Income, other personal information. Um, I'll give you an example of my own. 
Uh, my uh, daughter just starts high school this fall, actually freshman orientation was this morning and, and enrolling her, they asked for a copy of, this is a registrar, asked for a copy of her birth certificate. And of course, I'm one of these <laughs> very like hypersensitive to this type of like, it's PII. I'm like, Hello. And I said, how would you like that? Would you like me to upload it to a portal? Can I bring it by for you to look at? And she goes, oh, can't you just scan it and send it to me an email? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You were like, no. Absolutely. No, 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 no. Like that has everything. That has a lot of information, right? That initially people would use to open an account, right? That my maiden name, where she was born. Absolutely. A whole bunch of stuff. So, yeah. So there's a, there's a, some stuff is the patching. Some stuff is just the, um, the human, uh, human part of it. But I think we're getting better at the fishing. I think people are getting more savvy around the fishing stuff, uh, just because of all the efforts of trying to help everybody understand that it's everybody's responsibility, but it's still understaffed and under resourced and underfunded, um, to be frank. So, um, I think we did a, our first annual state edtech trends survey last year. Um, cybersecurity was the number one um, uh, priority uh, in terms of technology for their um, state departments of education, you know, obviously helping uh, working with their LEAs. And at the time, only 6% of the respondents said that they provided ample funding for cybersecurity. Um, spoiler spoiler so alert. Number one item, but number no one, money. <laughs> no money. Uh, the good news is we have our 23 report coming out here in a couple of weeks, probably, I think, about four weeks. Um, the good news is uh, the funding has gone up. Cybersecurity is still number one. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. Um, but there has been a shift in the funding amount, not by what you think it is, but at least there's a, a positive um, reaction and um, response to that. Yeah, for sure. So... I was surprised, Julia, um, on the 22 report that 70% of what agency or at least one school district had been victim to a cyber attack and it would shut down what learning from three days to three weeks. That's bananas. Yep. It is. I, and I think when I people don't, can't even, yeah. <laughs> they don't think about the impact to the community, right? We, we saw that during the, I mean, the pandemic was a prime example of when you shut a community down, you impact, I mean, shut a school down, you impact a lot of things. Right. Uh, parent people can't go to work because they're looking for childcare. Um, exactly. It's just a lot of things happen. Yeah. So you don't want to shut a school down from a technology perspective, nor do we want to necessarily dissuade use of technology, right? We, we live in an increasingly right. digital and connected world. We want students to have those experiences. So they're prepared when they leave our systems um, to be productive <laughs> and successful citizens. Um they're going to be using it in their careers. I mean, we, I, I'm using chat GPT right. all the time now, it feels like, um, and that sort of thing. So we want them to have those experiences. So we don't want to take the technology away, but we also don't want to put everybody at risk um, as well. Right. I, you know, I was reading about the, I guess the attack on in a New Haven, Connecticut uh, that happened recently, I think, and it was $6 million that they had to pay out. And, and I think also people don't think about where the money comes from. If, if schools don't have a lot of funding to begin with, I think, you know, they got some of it back, but they took, I think, $5 million from this, the school buses, right, for the public schools on how they, you know, I mean, of all the places, but it's got to come from somewhere. And I, I think that's the other part that they don't think about, kind of like healthcare, right? I mean, yeah. the budgets are already stretched pretty thin, um, you know, where do you find the dollars? Because, you know, insurance companies nowadays, uh, they're not really interested in paying out or they don't want to offer insurance anymore at all. Um, exactly. You know, and it's, 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 it, it's terrible. <laughs> I just don't know what else to say. It's so terrible, you know, and it's, it gets, it's promising when you see things like, you know, the, the Biden administration last week, I think um, AWS made a $20 million commitment to fund cyber grant program. Um, it looks like there's activities happening with the Universal Service Fund. I mean, if I, I guess it's encouraging to see some movements at the at the federal level as well. There Hopefully is and trickles down. Yeah, and CETA and, and myself and uh, another organization called COSIN, uh, we've advocated for the FCC to to uh, modernize the definition of firewall. So right now they're eligible under E-rate. And what people don't understand about the E-rate program, um, one, it's been highly successful. Um, but it's also the largest amount of money for tech, for technology for schools that's not appropriated by Congress, right? It's not subject to the whims of Congress and what's happening. It's literally money that schools and libraries can get 
the higher poverty um, and need you are, the bigger the discount you get on your um, services and everything else. But then that allows you to spend money somewhere else, right? So if you're if you're using E-rate dollars for X, then you can spend your regular K-12 budget for other things, um, right? For the, the business of school, in essence. And um, so we've always been advocating for that sort of thing because it hasn't been updated in a long time and technology has changed. Um, but I think we're trying to find that sweet spot of where we can find um, monies. So one of the things that um, I'm hoping to advocate for is a little bit have, having schools actually collect home access data to maybe triangulate what the FCC and everybody else is reporting. Um, one being that if we can start to see where there's pockets where people are still not connected, because we even with the pandemic and the huge mm. investment that was made um, by the federal government to connect everybody, we still have pockets and communities that are not connected. Um, some telcos are not running or ISPs are not running fiber, um, you know, through a mountain. Um, it's cost prohibitive for a small community of, you know, 56 that live there. So I'm what I'm hoping to do is if we could, um, there are four data elements that CCSSO, which is the chief, oh my gosh, chief council of chief school uh, chiefs. I think I got that right. Um, they put out four elements and we're hoping that school districts will actually collect on that so that we have common uh, data elements between states, but we can maybe find, which is I'm hoping, this is my theory, that the hills of West Virginia are probably the same, you know, those people in those communities are the same as the hills in western, um, eastern Washington, and then maybe we can actually target some policy to help those communities where maybe satellite or microwave or something else would be more appropriate, but it's cost prohibitive um, and not accessible with a $40 a month, you know, through the ACP program, which is the program that they have out there to help low income households um, get connected. So um, from a policy perspective, we're trying to figure out if, if there's way, different ways to make the case for XYZ so that we can serve those communities that are really um, either rural or remote or underserved, uh, or they're just geographically challenged. I mean, there's no way to go around that right. um, when you have a big mountain in the way um, or you're in a deep valley. So yeah, trying to trying to figure out that sort of thing. Um, there's other things that we've been doing as a as an organization because we're states and they like to talk to each other. And because often they're the only one or two people in their buildings uh, that are job alike. And um, we're talking about how do we help small and rural and undersourced districts, um, maybe through state sponsored programs. For example, Connecticut, um, as a state, has purchased DDoS software for the entire for all schools and libraries in the state, which helps mitigate right off the network that they're all running on some of that initial protection, um, and then that doesn't come out of a small school or library's budget. So that's a state-sponsored program. Or are there examples of cooperative service models where we have something called educational service districts? They serve maybe a number of smaller districts, and maybe there's somebody there that could be the cybersecurity professional that sort of helps monitor or respond or, you know, report incidents. Um, and then they can share in that cost versus having to have a full-time cybersecurity uh, professional. Uh, we work with COSIN. Um, we have a collaborative. It's sort of a professional learning community amongst our um, state members and our corporate members and our affiliate members just to share resources and to create resources for themselves. And um, we worked with COSIN last year to create sort of a staffing. A lot of the questions that we would get at the state level was, I need to hire somebody that has cybersecurity. Do you have any job descriptions? I'm like, well, what do you need them to do? Like, do you need a full-blown person? Do you need just somebody that has some certifications? You know, that sort of thing. And um, we put that out as a resource. Uh, COSIN, um, it was under our direction, but they uh, produced a resource around staffing and what that looks like so that from a budgetary and sort of job description kind of lens, you can figure out what you might need and what you can budget for. So those are ways that we come together to, yeah, to kind of, to leverage those, um, those experiences and states like to learn from each other, right? If one state's already going out and doing it, then maybe they can modify it and do it for themselves as well. So do you want to go to Audra? I have some questions. That's all right. The the question is what what are you doing to actually help schools in in understanding even though it's number one priority they don't have the skills often within them to do this themselves how are you actually helping to kind of up their skills so that they get it a bit more on how it's important and the things that they need to be aware of it's like like previously I was um, 
involved in a in another um, company. We used to do a lot of corporate social responsibility kind of stuff, and some of it was business skills mentoring to actually help people get what they needed to consider, even if they were a charity and running a charity, it's like, well, cybersecurity is still important and what they need to be aware of and and how they need to manage those sorts of things. Are they doing anything around that in terms of are there well, programs to help kind of raise their yeah, knowledge? Yeah, their, their level yeah, of sorry. everything. So as states, we are really trying to yes. figure out how we help resource our um, local education agencies, also known as school districts. Um, and we, we work closely with those organizations that may have those types of programs. So like I mentioned COSIN, um, and we, we work closely, closely with them. They are typically, they typically represent all of the, um, local district CIO, CTOs, um, and that sort of thing. And we are, we work in conjunction because we represent state level and they represent sort of that local level. So what can we do as a state? What's our role as state leaders in helping um, upskill resource. Um, is there a way to sort of, uh, mitigate things, right? So is there a mitigation layer that the state can take on sort of like the DDoS example from Connecticut? Um, I do know that there's other examples and I can pull them up in just a second. Um, here, but, um, that, uh, where the state is training, those folks to have those skills. And I believe it's like Missouri or Minnesota. My brain is escaping me at the moment um, and everything else. But the idea is to, to figure out how you can cooperatively and collaboratively um, offer those types of services to support your LEAs. Again, 2000, well, I, I want to say a third of the schools in the country are under 2000, which is its own set of um uh, resource challenge, right? Then you have, you have your really big districts where, you know, an LAUSD or a New York City or, you know what I mean, uh, Chicago and all of them, they actually have teams of cybersecurity professionals on staff. And that's a difference of, you know, I mean, just being resourced um, properly and everything else. But now that people are talking a little bit more about it, it is the hot topic, right? No one wants to get hit. Um, and, and we're getting better at the human stuff. Like people are not clicking on links or thinking twice, though that example that I personally experienced, I'm like, oh, maybe there's a role for, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, to maybe do some CAN training for school registrars because they're on the front lines of that PII. And if they're not thinking through the ramifications, who is, you know what I mean? Are they protecting it from that get-go? Um, versus, you know, it's the school secretary by accident or something happens. Um, but helping everybody really understand that it's, it's everybody's responsibility. It's not just your IT guy. It's, it's moving that conversation to the superintendent and the school board conversation that this is a function and a risk, right? It's a risk and a function of school operations. Um, and if you want to have a modern school system, you have to have, um, you know, you have to have staffing and resources to um, actually provide that infrastructure, especially when kids are out of school, too, in some ways. Right. So the idea is, you know, kids now have devices. We don't want them to be locked in a closet when they leave. They're doing homework. They're doing yeah. projects within Google Docs or in the Google Classroom or Teams or however the school is set up. Um, and we want them to be able to have that access at home to still connect to their classmates and their teacher and their classrooms and the content and high quality instructional materials. So um, there's a way to extend that those networks, you know what I mean, to make sure they're secure as well. But again, it's really making sure that everybody's aware that there's an issue. You know what I mean? Uh, of course, we have, I think about all the things that you see on like Facebook and everything else, you have generations that you have to teach about. <laughs> I think there's some like, I feel like Agreed. the younger generation is really yeah. cognizant, right? And they're they're getting a little bit more savvy about not putting everything out there. Whereas there's other generations where it's a little bit more, they click on it going, Oh, I'm going to win a prize. And then they've given away like all their things. And then you have to work with your older parent (laughs) and wonder why their credit card got compromised. So, um, you know, just sorts of, but that stuff we're getting better at. I think people are getting better at it. Um, it is really making sure that we don't shut down networks at the end of the day. And how, how is some of that kind of, education being trickled down into students because it's not just making teachers and school districts and things like that aware, but um, 
in a previous life again, um, we did a lot of stuff on employability skills with a local university in London. And when we talked to students about their digital footprint, they were surprised that like potential employers were like Googling them before interviews and things like that. And weren't really thinking about some of the things they were putting out there. And the fact Oops. that a lot of this stuff doesn't go away. <laughs> and and so, so how is a lot of the work that you do beyond kind of enabling the school districts, how are you focusing on the students themselves and kind of educating them on their online journey? Um, a lot of schools and um, states have adopted the ISTE, which is the International Society for Technology Education Standards for students and administrators. It's sort of the digital, it's in the digital literacy or the ICT space um, around how you use um, uh, technology responsibly, which is also about how you protect your own data, making sure that you're not compromising yourself. Um, it's, it's really around that digital citizenship. I mean, there's some great resources out there through common sense and digital responsibility. Who's one of our, um, corporate members and everything else, just helping them understand you, you just like your front door, right? You have to, like, you can't just let it out there, but I have to tell you, this is, and this is probably a controversial, maybe this is a little controversial. I really hope that, um, employers also don't necessarily encourage this scrubbed, kind of persona for folks like what I did at 20 I hope that people if I'm doing it at 40 or 50 then perhaps you might want to think that I have a problem but if I you know what I mean like there's moments yeah. where people need to be really uh cognizant about what they do post but they really should try to be as authentic as possible right and be who they are and express themselves I mean um and I know there's some examples where it's like yep you shouldn't have put that online and now you're going to live with it forever <laughs> but we hope that people do learn from these types of experiences and everything else and that we have, but also schools should be able to offer those types of experiences too, so they can learn in a safe place um, Absolutely. before it becomes, you know, like a meme or something else um, and goes viral. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I, I try, I try to help my, <laughs> my godsons who are both late teens at the moment and in, in educating, we, we had a bet with them that um, if they didn't smoke, before they were 21 or whatever, we'd give them a thousand pounds. And they couldn't work out how I realized that they had smoked. And, and I was like, you posted, you posted on Instagram smoking a hookah while on holiday in Turkey. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, like, so I have, you know, photographic evidence because I was like, how do you know? So, but I think we're all at the age where we had photographic evidence think. too. It just wasn't digital and went and made 50 copies of, right? I'm pretty sure if the, um, Hallelujah. Yeah, for that. exactly. Yeah. Or it got burned. <laughs> or got burnt, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, just think twice. I mean, I often try to tell my own kid, like, just think twice before you post something. If you could not say it to your grandmother or if you could not, like, live with it, if it got out, right? Because a lot of times people are doing things thinking it's in a private space and it's not. Um, if you can still yeah. stand by it, then by all means do it. I just worry about, like, I was thinking about those poor teachers that like are on summer holiday and they're at the beach and they have a margarita in their hand on Facebook and then they don't get hired in a, you know, like as a teacher because they have an alcoholic beverage. And I'm like, but they're old enough and they're not, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it, this is, that's hard for me. Like saying, well, they're an adult, like they should right. be able, yes, they may be working with children. It doesn't mean they have a margarita in their hand when they're standing in front of them for a great class. Exactly. Um, um, and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, it, that's, that's an interesting thing there, but I really want people to be who they are. You know what I mean? And be able to express right. themselves without it. Definitely. We were all 21 at one point. Um, oh, absolutely. Sort of I, I'm worried that <laughs> that same picture shows up when you're 50, right? Like that's like, okay, is there a, a pattern here? Maybe that's the, the case uh, that we should be worried about, but <laughs> a little grace, I think for some, some folks, some stuff is truly not good, but some other stuff is like, well, you know what? I remember being 20 and full yeah. brain was not always there right in the front lobe. Wasn't quite developed. Well, it's 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 not attached yeah. yet. <laughs> no, it's not. The logic map is definitely time, still so. being uh, mapped out there and everything else. So, yep, that's hilarious. 
But no, um, in terms of like, it's so, digital citizenship is a big thing and, and we should still be thinking yeah. about that and everything. And it's not just the technology teacher's responsibility. It literally is everybody's responsibility in school. So, right. um, you know what I mean? And, and I'm not saying that a science teacher needs to be a technology teacher. I just, they need to understand how that plays into what they're doing. And especially like social studies, right? You're doing research. I mean, ChatGPT is a big conversation. If we're not talking about cybersecurity, we're talking about AI. And for me, it's like, yeah. well, I'd rather you be focused on the process then, not the output of a final paper. Right. What kind of queries were they asking? Were they able to triangulate the data? Because that's the skills that we want somebody right. to be to have to be successful at the end of the day. Exactly. Um, and are you getting misinformation? Can you tell? You know, that sort of stuff. So. And, and um, have they read it after it was written for them? That's the one thing. <laughs> ChatGPT, people are like, yeah, I asked it to do this. I'm like, but did you read it? Got to read it. <laughs> read yes. it after you get it done. Have you noticed <laughs> it's it? It's accurate. It sounds very 1930s in language too, which I don't understand if that's the collection from 2000 to 2021, right? It sounds very 1930s language, very proper and everything else. But yeah, it's not... I have to change it. Can we, I I do want to kind of go back to like, you know, kids getting, you know, phones and iPads when they're three now. Like it it seems like, Hey, that there's your, your future hackers that, you know, maybe could help, you know, secure schools. But it also makes me think that like, what age should we start trying to like get them into the cybersecurity world? Right. You know, we have this huge talent gap in security that's, we've been talking about it for years. We've all heard about it, but it's always like, at what age can you start introducing these kind of things? It's, I mean, if you're K through 12, is it, are we talking kindergarten? We start introducing these concepts. I mean, they're already configuring iPads at that age is what I'm hearing right now. I think, (laughs) I think, I think it's looking for certain characteristics, right? You're looking for kids that are always Mm -hmm. curious, tinkerers, you know what I mean? Or, Maybe they can look at something differently. Um, and I remember when I was working with high schools, um, when I first started at the state office, um, your CS people are a little bit different than your database people, even though they program. Does it make right. sense? They both learn how to program. Yeah. But how they come at the data or how they come at the problem is a little bit different. So yeah. if you can try to figure out those characteristics, um, I had wished that, you know, I took four years of math and science and um, high school spent every summer at the science center. That, that was my thing. Like just manipulating and being curious. No one thought engineering. Right. And I love logic math in ninth grade. I still use it to this day. I feel like if then else statements, which is computational thinking. And I mean, I use it not even in, in a, in a programming sense. I use it in a just business model sense, like, or I'm putting together register, we're putting together registration for an event, like, you know, trying to figure out how we, if then else things, but how do we help teachers recognize sort of some of the characteristics of folks in the field and then be able to talk to them about that? Um, you know, it could be cybersecurity in the field that you love, right? So I think of myself as an IT professional in education. I have to know all the things I need to know about IT in some ways to be successful, but I also need to know the industry sector that I'm in. If I'm in healthcare, I'm still an IT professional, but I need to understand a little bit about the characteristics of the healthcare industry or manufacturing or whatever space you're in. Not everybody's going to go work at Microsoft in, in an IT space, right? Um, that is not necessarily, they're not going to go work for that true technology um, industry kind of thing. They may be working as an IT professional in military whole, across, the, across the thing. So they could still have almost a love of two things. I think for me is I've always loved school um, and... I just happen to be in that space and I'm an IT person in that space versus, you know, like maybe some, there's somebody is interested there, but I think there's some characteristics about cybersecurity. Like there's a kind of a wanting to take things apart. It's tinkering. It's curiosity. Um, I, we encourage schools to have like tech school tech teams and to encourage obviously both um, girls and boys um, to, to be in that space, working on those yes. things. Um, so it becomes normalized. We do have to look at um, other things, though, too, because being a woman in the field, regardless of what industry sector you're in as an IT professional, is how do you then recruit and retain, right? So those there's lots of groups that are doing lots of good work in the space, and all of those tenants, I believe, still hold true. Um, but I would like us to think about, and this is a, a, an example that I use often when we talk about 
employers requiring them to be back in the office, right? No more remote work and not thinking about how you could do some yeah. hybrid work. Um, I have a perfect example of where we had a really successful computer science program for girls in central, north central Washington. And this is typically an area of the state where um, migrants are working, right? They're working the fields uh, in a backward sea in our state. They start off with, um, you know, fruit, basically apples and whatnot. And then they kind of make this backward sea and they end up in the south part of the state um, and everything else. But this is a huge Latino population of folks that are living there. And we had girls that were really doing well, right? They were knocking out of the park. And when we started to talk to them about degrees and going to college and then maybe getting a job in the field, they didn't want to leave their family, right? In that culture, the family is the core of the culture. And them going, thinking of going off to a university and then having to move to Seattle means that they would leave their family. So then you're, you, it's not even just an issue about them having the talent. It's just, but if we were encouraging maybe remote work, or that people were open to that and we had connectivity that was well enough, you could actually have those women in those places still having those high skill, high wage jobs without having to leave their families, right? And, and leaving um, right. the communities that they love and they want to be part of. Um, and maybe they go to Seattle once or twice a month, right? Which is easy to do um, versus, right. you know, I, you have to be in here every Wednesday, um, this kind of mentality and this backlash that we had from the pandemic. So to be thinking about different ways to, you know what I mean? Have the work get done um, and encourage that sort of thing for me. You know, it, it, it's across the sector. I don't, I, across all the sectors, I don't think it's just right. education. I think it's literally all of them. If you want more cybersecurity people, then um, you might need to be a little more flexible. Somebody might not be able to move. Exactly. And that sort of thing. Or they might, they just want to be with their families. Um, but looking at those other characteristics to encourage uh, folks to, to, I should, students to enter the field, right? Again, it, uh, we had a cohort of, um, of uh, girls that could have went off to have four-year degrees, you know what I mean, and had those things, but, you know, they were choosing. And I understand why. I'm, I'm not going to begrudge them at all, but uh, it, it's, it's one of the things like, oh, well, we didn't think about that. And how would they get those jobs? Because those, those companies are not moving to their backyards. So um, how do we still bring them into those companies and everything else? So. Yeah, cybersecurity. I mean, I'm just thinking there's a curiosity. <laughs> Sorry, my little uh, wiener dog is barking here, and I don't know if you can hear him, but he's barking off. So anyway, yeah, that's something that's near and dear to my heart, um, just because it's been, I think this, 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 the gap has been closing in terms of like non-trad for women in the field, but uh, it's, it's still something that we need to do, just hand, being able to handle all of it. So. Absolutely. It's, um, I mean, I, I always think of the silver lining of things and, you know, kind of, thank goodness the pandemic happened, right? Because we saw that remote work is possible. People can be productive. Businesses can thrive, you know, and, and hopefully that kind of keeps that door open ahead. I know some are trying to come back to work, but I mean, personally, right? And, and Audra, I'm sure you found this being... <laughs> <laughs> the dog did too. <laughs> That's right. I have two dachshunds. I love them. They love to bark all day long. Um, you know, but... The access to talent, you know, I had access to talent I never would have had access to because I was able to look out of state and, you know, it's uh, the contributions, the different, you know, thinking and perspective they bring to the team just makes us better. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate as well. I, I will always advocate for remote work. I think uh, me it's too. so critical. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, I think that so, we're going to see companies like come back a little bit. I think they were very hardcore about everybody come back in and then they realize, I think right. this, the younger generation, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that they are really like trying to make it more work life. I truly, truly make it work life balance. Yeah, like, you know I what I mean? It, you yeah. don't, you don't wait till the last minute to, you don't wait till your, your end years to enjoy your life. Um, and that sort of thing, but hopefully it'll have a more positive effect in terms of remote work and being able to be more flexible. So you can allow more people to actually participate in, in the industry sectors that we have. Exactly. Exactly. I will say, you know, Gen X here as well. Um, I love that they're moving back home with their parents after college. I would love to live with my parents now. I'm just going to say that out loud. Um, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I like to reduce that stigma as well, though. I don't know if my parents want me back, but I would love to move back home. Uh, my so, mom lives live with me. So my mother's amazing. My mom lives with me. So I, I yeah. have, I have that happening already. <laughs> 
So I uh, love that. I yeah. love that. The culture and the stories and the family and all the things that you get to learn. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it helps. I my mom's actually from Europe. Do. No, my mom's from Europe. So I think that's just part of the, the culture yeah. there and everything else. And, and for me, I'm grateful that she's got my, uh, her granddaughter. They have that relationship, but she also keep, has a mean garden outside. I would never be able to keep a garden like I do um, if I didn't have my mom. So it's all her. <laughs> that keeps her busy. Yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. So can I ask one more question? It's sure. kind of tangential as usual, but um, TikTok and schools, what's what's the verdict with this on the security front? How, how, how do schools feel about this? I, I I don't know if I'm prepared to answer that. Um, uh, I don't know. I think, I think schools, <laughs> I honestly don't. Um, it's interesting because it kind of goes back and forth. I haven't figured out where we're landed the plane yet um, in terms of use. I don't think that they can block it completely. Well, they probably could block it off their school networks. But kids have phones, right. yeah. and, oh, absolutely. Um, and that sort of thing. I don't, I don't know. I, the government, the federal government, is sort yeah. of trying to land a plane. So it's, it's kind of like everybody's there, still trying to figure out what's going to happen. Um, so I can't really say uh, with TikTok and things. At first, I thought we were going to definitely ban stuff, and then there's nothing happened. So I'm like, okay. So I guess that's. It's it's such a great platform though. I think about like back think about us right doing all those applications back in the day. If you wanted to put together a three minute video, how hard it was! You would be taking like fourteen right. classes in college just to produce something, and it's the barrier is so exactly the in terms of being access to the tools is so much lower that I am really excited that. Not that to say that people need to not have design and everything else. Eventually, like if they're going to be professional, they will get into that design space. And I think people will appreciate the design aspects um, that come with those types of careers and expertise. But in terms of like putting together a flyer or doing something, I think it's really super creative. And um, I wish I had those tools when I was in college and doing other things as well. Right? Yeah. Uh, we had like those little Macs with the the Mac, the all-in-one Mac with a little itty bitty three-inch display, <laughs> you yeah. know, on the floppy disk. I learned Carol exactly. the robot on that little Mac. Do <laughs> 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 remember that too? <laughs> oh, oh my hilarious. gosh! That's when I, that's when I learned uh, I was not a very tears. efficient programmer. I was very long. You know, like they talk about, I'd be doing the three rights instead of the left. Um, and that's how I realized programming probably was not my forte. So that's okay. Yeah. We're Same. doing okay. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> so as we look at kind of the next, you know, five to 10 years, Julia, for, for the education market and, um, you know, ed tech, what do you, what do you kind of see happening? You know, where, where is it evolving? What opportunities should we be looking out for? Um, I am hope. So I would say one of the areas that we've been focusing on, because we're trying to trend watch in some ways, is research yeah. and evidence. So in the, especially in the K-12 space, um, we have been trying and it is in some ways my goal is to help our members, right, our state members in particular, um, because they will in turn help their local districts become better consumers, so when they are walking a, mm -hmm. a conference floor, they're talking to a potential vendor that they are saying, well, show me the research, show me the learning research that mm. was built into this, baked into this product so that I know that it might work, right? Especially when they're starting out a startup, thinking about their research and evidence. And then of course, encouraging them also to participate in the research cycle, even after they've launched um, and is there ways, you know, if you're going to say reading scores are going up, what are you doing to, sh to engage in that research practice? Um, because because right. teaching and learning is really a practice. Um, and how do we encourage more research and evidence kind of activities in right. our spaces? Um, and what may work right. in one district may not work in another district. And that's those are sorts of things that you want right. to ferret out. Um, but I want our members and our school districts to be better consumers, right? They can walk down and say, show me the research. And they're not listening to a bunch of marketing stuff. They can say, no, show me really where, where you did this. Show me your logic model. Show me the yeah. lit review. Show me all the good stuff. So I'm hoping that that's where we're going to see a lot more conversation. And I think we do. The Department nice. of Education put out some guidance around research and evidence just because you can even just get started. If you don't have a lit review and all that stuff, well then start with the logic model and start with a needs assessment and go from there. What research question are you answering? 
So um, that's where I'm kind of pointing some of our resources is to really look at that. Of course, cybersecurity is still going to be something is evolving. Is there ways that we can highlight those kind of um, right. those models and everything else? And can we get better at it? Um, um, we're looking at AI, but I'm, we're trying to uh-huh. figure out if we're in a hype cycle still. Is this a hype cycle or is this one of the things that right. we, is it really transformational in the sense or is it an ed tech thing? And there's things about ed tech that we always hold true. Is it secure? Is it private? Mm-hmm. Is it accessible? You know what I mean? Um, is there like, re- there's certain things that we kind of go through. We, we, we do that with every single sort of technology that comes at us. And we have those conversations. Those are the tenets that we hold true. Um, so AI is one of those where I'm not sure where we've landed that plane yet, but we are definitely like getting into that space as an emerging technology um, because there's a lot of hype about how it's going to change everything. And then there's some of us that are like, well, yeah, we've seen this before. This happened with whiteboards or this happened with whatever, you know. Um, the other area that we're really trying to uh, focus on as well is professional learning um, in terms of helping teachers really understand how to design learning experiences. So we've talked about access and I have to say before the pandemic, I was a little bit um, not sure that we would actually see every single home connected in this country. Like it was like, it was like a pipe dream, but I can actually almost see the end of the the tunnel there that we're going to really work on that. It's not just an education thing. It's really for us to be um, a prosperous country. We have to have everybody connected. Telehealth happens you know, banking happens, applying for jobs, you have to have a connection in order to be able to do all those types of things. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about accessibility. We're getting better at accessible tech, right? And making sure that all students' needs are being met. Um, But the area that we're really seem to be in the, and a preview for the NETP, and it's, it's public out there. So it's not like I'm saying anything that's out of line, but is that design, how do we design learning experiences with technology to really bring the learning to life? or helping students be creators versus consumers of technology, that they are in there creating things and learning at the same time. So how do we help teachers get those types of skills? Um, nobody should be implementing technology without some professional learning. <laughs> there should be some professional learning for your for your educators on how to use it. Um, that should be a part of it and not just like, you know, you're taking two days to learn how to open a file in the program. It's really how do you use right. that tool in the learning environment. Um, and again, it goes back to research and evidence. Is it really working? Is it not? How many people are actually using it? If it's not, then you can kind of, you know, it's in terms of tool selection. So um, that's the other kind of areas where I think EdTech is kind of pointing its yes. North Star and everything else. Yep. That's exciting. That's exciting. I love it. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Julia, thank you so much. I, I'm so excited. You're our first EdTech guest and and i hope not the last and um yeah thanks for all these great insights it's it's, it's just such a wonderful opportunity you know and, and and the work that you're doing is just so critical you know so thank you for for championing this because um yeah it's we got to protect these schools <laughs> and yeah. we got to get get teachers the right tools they need to succeed as well so and thank you so much for having me i great, really great appreciate work. it thanks it's been great awesome. Thank you. And to all our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. 